Oh, hi, I'm Alan Gannett. And I'm Shane Snow. And you're listening to Creative Hotline, the call and advice show dedicated to helping creatives reach their full potential. Today, we're answering questions on drugs, depression, and their impact on creativity. So what does science actually tell us about the relationship between mental health, suffering, and creativity? Do uppers like Adderall make you more creative? And is the trade-off worth it? And we take a question from a listener who wants to know if getting psychiatric treatment might negatively affect one's creativity at work. All that and more in this episode of Creative Hotline. Creative Hotline, leave your question at the... Hey, Alan and Shane. My name's Byron. I've got a question for you. So I'm a writer, and on the subject of mental health, there is a stereotype about writers that somehow the more pain and suffering you've endured can make you a better writer and that you can translate those experiences into good stories and good storytelling. So my question is, do you think that some amount of suffering is necessary for creativity? And if so, how does one strike a balance between staying sane and being creative? That should be a really easy question to uh, give a simple answer to. So way to start us off with an easy question, Byron, but thank you. So First of all, some suffering we can't help, and we're going to be better off if we get help. And so many creative people go through really hard things in their lives. But the question here sounds like, should we seek out suffering to get more creative? So I recently watched the documentary of the making of Apocalypse Now. And I don't know if you know the story, Alan, but this movie won a ton of awards. And to make it, the director Francis Ford Coppola basically forced hundreds of film crew members and their families to live in the jungle for almost a whole year. And it was completely miserable, like torture. Like Martin Sheen was only 36 years old and he had a heart attack because of the stress. And Coppola himself almost lost his mind. And when you watch something like that, it does beg the question, could they have made that masterpiece of a movie without so much agony? Or was the agony itself key to them being creative? So I'm curious, what's your take on this, Alan? What, what do you think? I, I don't really like this dark artist trope of, you know, they're all moody and sort of wistful all the time. Like, I think it's kind of, I don't know, it, it feels very convenient and it feels a little easy. And there's this, I remember Mihai Checks at Mihai, who wrote this book, Flow, which is really popular. Mm-hmm. He talks about how when he did this study looking at art school students and art school teachers and other students think that the sort of moody artists are going to be the most successful. But when you check in 10 years later, what he found was actually the best artists were the ones who were good at like marketing. (laughs) Right. And so I don't know. I think a lot of this is just these sort of cultural cliches that we have. So I think that there's something to be said for personality when it comes to creativity. If you're drawn to certain things because of your personality If you are introverted and you tend to do a lot of thinking or you tend to, you know, my wife's a good example of this, place a premium on how something feels and whether it feels authentic versus, you know, some of us personality wise, we place those premiums on other things. And I think that it, there's a very good case for someone who does a lot of feeling and placing that premium and going inwardly. There's a, a case to be made for that kind of person has a chance at, you know, at being more creative. But I think when I hear this question about the suffering and all of that, I I think what you're getting at, Alan, is right on that it's not necessarily the stereotype that leads to creativity. But with Byron in particular, he's talking about writing stories, telling great stories. And one of the things that is a core element of a really compelling story is tension. It's having intentions and then facing obstacles. 
you know, the obstacles are what make the story interesting. Romeo and Juliet would not be a good story if everyone was on board with them getting together, right? And so I think if you are, you've lived a lot of experiences, you have a lot to draw from, which I think ties into a lot of, of what you write about, about creativity. But if none of those experiences have obstacles, then, or have been tough, then I do think it could be harder to write stories that have good tension. Mm. Um, so I think there's something there to it. I don't know that it's necessary. I think you could research and you can, you know, work on writing stories with tension, but being able to draw naturally from your experiences, I think there is something to that. But I also think suffering to me feels like such a heavy word. A lot of these things are things we experience in life sort of generally, right? People have breakups, people have family members die. A lot of these things that you'd want to draw on for your like creative endeavors, I just feel sort of happen. You sort of said this, I think, well, but sort of live a big life, right? I think yes. If you want to be creative, you have to sort of experience a range of emotions. And so you can draw on those emotions because, you know, a lot of art is also about happy things. Right. right. A lot of music's about love. It's not all art is about, you know, some depressive coming of age story. And so I think I like I like this idea of sort of living a big and full life is sort of critical, I think, to creativity. Yeah. And I think if you have experienced suffering, then reflect on that, see what you can learn from that and express that. And that can absolutely be a source of creativity, but it doesn't it, don't convince yourself that it's the only source of creativity. Don't go out and get in trouble so that you can be creative. Go out and experience. I think uh, the big life is exactly the right way to sum it up. Totally. I like that. So Byron, you don't have to suffer, but sometimes a little suffering is uh, some inspiration. Before we get to our next question from a caller, we're going to go into a segment called Creative Disagreement. All right. We, we know from research that creativity often comes out of cognitive friction and that disagreement can be super productive if we do it right. But this segment is where I just use all of that as an excuse to nitpick something that Alan has written that I disagree with and make him explain himself. So, Alan, are you ready for some creative disagreement? No, but it's fine. Okay. Do it. I'm here for it. We're going to do it anyway. Agree to disagree. I've been seeing this quote going around LinkedIn with your face on it from an interview you recently did. And it says this, two ingredients you need to come up with a great idea. One, raw material, and two, silence. Okay, so I have two problems with this. First, <laughs> raw material. Is that really one ingredient? <laughs> I mean, this is like a grammar question, but okay, keep going. <laughs> All right. So I'm just saying, this is kind of like saying that there's two ingredients to make pizza, pizza and an oven, but we'll, <laughs> we'll move past that. The, the real thing, <laughs> the most important, more important part of this that I, I actually have questions about is, is silence really a necessary ingredient to coming up with good ideas? Mm. Mm. So I think what's interesting is we live right now in this age where there's a lot of distractions. Our mutual friend, Nirayal, who wrote a great book on this called Indistractable, talks about how we live in a time of sort of pings, dings, and rings. And I think for a lot mm -hmm. of people, to me, it makes sense that this is a time where we struggle to be creative. And it's the sort of reason why, and it's a little cliche, but it's important, is creative processing happens in our right hemisphere. And our right hemisphere processes information. Of the brain. Of the brain. Of the brain, yes. Of the brain. Not of the world. Right below our level of consciousness. I like to think about it sort of as like your dorky, quiet lab partner in college who's sort of working away on the problem. 
And only mm. once they get the answer do they sort of perk up and say, hey, I got the answer. And the issue is that there's too many things going on. You tend not to experience those aha moments or those flashes of inspiration that your right hemisphere has been working so diligently on. And so this is why for a lot of people, you experience inspiration in the shower, on your commute, well, you know, on a walk, on a run. It's not that your shower tile or, you know, seeing yourself naked is particularly inspiring, although go you if it is, but yeah. those are moments, <laughs> those are moments when your right hemisphere can be heard. And so when I say that silence is core to creativity, what I mean is that our brain is constantly working and in order to actually experience the work that it's doing, we have to sort of shut up and listen. So here's where I have some creative disagreement on this. <laughs> is I have seen studies and I think my personal experience backs this up, or at least I've, you know, I, I live according to this idea that if you have a low level of noise going on in the background, it can help you when you work. So, you know, working in a coffee shop where people aren't talking to you, but you're hearing music, you're hearing noise, those things uh, supposedly kind of keep your brain at attention and sort of peaked and, and allow you to grab onto micro distractions, which could be good for creativity. So that's, that's what I have seen uh, some chatter about, you know, in, in academic studies. So that's where I, I wonder, is silence a necessary ingredient or how do you interpret kind of what I'm saying with this low yeah. level non-silence? I, mean, I, I think that to me is sort of a similar thing around like that allows you to sort of still hear what's going on in the right hemisphere because your left hemisphere isn't firing off and activating, right? So when you hear language and it's sort of direct and pointed towards you, your left hemisphere processes it, sort of synthesizes the meaning. And so when you hear sort of a low, you know, a low roar of a coffee shop, that's not happening. And so I, to me, that sort mm -hmm. of strikes me as very, is uh, in practice the same thing, even though it's different. I find that that sort of coffee shop low sort of sound is useful to me, especially if I want a little element of peer pressure. Something about the sort of commotion makes me feel almost embarrassed if I'm not also working and doing my thing. Interesting. So I think that to me, that is a similar thing. I, I, I think that is a form of silence in my mind. I don't mean sort of pin drop quiet, you know? Yeah. So it strikes me that actually part of this might have to do with productivity versus creativity. Mm. You know, when mm. I think about doing creative work and getting into a flow, I think about being able to write for a long time. And uh, that isn't necessarily the same thing as being able to come up with clever things to write or clever ways mm. to express what I'm writing. And so, yeah, well, amen. Amen. I mean, I think that is like, and I think people confuse that so often, like there's so much advice, like write a thousand words a day. And that's really advice about productivity. Cause mm. I don't know about you, but like, I don't do that. Cause I find that when I do that, I write garbage. Versus I have a whole process around coming up with good ideas. And I'd rather, you know, there's that sort of meme about work harder, not smarter. And, you know, or sorry, work smarter, not harder. Work harder, not smarter would not be the point. Work smarter, <laughs> I don't know. Let's go on. Yeah. Well, we, I think another time we can have a creative disagreement about that concept and about getting repetitions <laughs> in versus doing smart work. But uh, that's all the time we have for disagreeing today. So let's get back to the hotline. Hi, Ellen and Shane. This is Cindy, and I'm calling because I was wondering how you feel about Adderall. And I'm asking because for me, it helps really 
enhance my creativity. It helps me to produce what I think is much better work than when I'm not on it. But the personal side effects are somewhat devastating. I just go in benders without eating, and then I get depressed, and it's it's not good. I become just generally depressed. But I'm really worried if I stop taking it that I won't be able to produce, you know, the volume or the type of creative content that I'm able to when I'm on it. So just curious where you guys think the trade-off is of of productivity versus, you know, a more stable overall mental wellness. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Oh, I, uh, I mean, I, I'm not just saying this cause like my, like dad is probably listening. Hi dad. But like, I've never done Adderall. So like, I don't know. <laughs> Have you? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take this one. <laughs> I have some Adderall <laughs> in my bag right now. So I, I actually, I kind of knew that you didn't know too much about Adderall because when we were putting together the run of show for this episode, you misspelled Adderall and I picked oh, up on God. that. <laughs> no comment. I'm like really cool guys. <laughs> so this actually harkens back to the what we were just talking about with creativity versus productivity. You'll notice that she invoked both things in the question. Mm-hmm. And for, for anyone who doesn't know, Adderall is an amphetamine. And so it's in the same class as methamphetamine. It's uh, It's got less stigma. But what amphetamines do is they raise dopamine and norepinephrine. So dopamine is basically associated with reward and pleasure centers in the brain makes you feel great it's like uh you you get it from all sorts of other things but you know you eat candy you have sex you have a great achievement you play a game you get dopamine (laughs) um norepinephrine is uh basically you could think of it as like a cousin to adrenaline increases your heart rate makes you alert and so when you have these two things in your system you feel great, so you you're willing to do things that maybe suck or that you wouldn't feel as good about doing, like cleaning your house. You hear people do Adderall, and they you know they like scrub their tiles in their bathroom, and you are animated and excited. And so, when you take this and you're not taking it for ADD or a mental health issue like depression, which is what it sort of originally was prescribed for, basically it does make you very enthusiastic about doing work, and so. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is it's, you you hear people talk about this and and sort of argue about, does this enthusiasm for plowing ahead and doing work come at the cost actually of being able to slow down and make creative connections? And Mm. I think people are different and our brain chemistry, you know, will vary from person to person. So some people like me, for example, when I take Adderall, I can write a million words that day, but I Mm. will need to go back and edit, edit them to make them more clever and, you know, and, and more creative. But if you look at the history of, you know, I, I, I look at the history of writers for the most part, but you look at the history of very prolific artists and a lot of really great artists, you see that a lot of them do speed. So, you know, uh, Louisa May Alcott, Philip K. Oh, Dick. Like a lot, a lot, a lot is there. It feels like that feels like a big statement. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like there are artists who do speed. A lot is like, yeah. you know, more than you think, though, like Anne Rand, you know, all the libertarians out there. Oh, Anne Rand was on speed when she wrote The Fountainhead. Uh, but when you look at like Google drugs that artists do and what you'll see is that different artists have different drugs of choice. And also a lot to your point, a lot of artists do not use substances as productivity or creative boosts. But many artists have different drugs of choice. And I think that is a function of individual brain chemistry and personality I know a lot of people who love to have a little marijuana 
when they're brainstorming or, you know, or mm. coming up with creative ideas. I can't, it, it's not fun at all. I, I feel like I can't think. And I think that's a function of brain, brain chemistry. Well, so, oh, go ahead. Well, I think, so my like undereducated thoughts on this sort of thing, I think about a caffeine, just thinking about stimulants and I'm pretty caffeine sensitive. And I always think about there's this neuroscience psychology law called the Yerkes-Dodson law, which has, there's some, you know, there's some questionable elements of it, but basically what it says, and I think anyone who's experienced this with stimulants or caffeine can resonate with this, is that for complex tasks, there's a Goldilocks effect with stimulants where too little makes you mm -hmm. not very productive, too much makes you not very productive, that sort of jittery feeling, and there's sort of an ideal zone versus for simple tasks, sort of more is better, right? Just bring on mm -hmm. the caffeine, power through it. And I think this sort of speaks also to what you're saying around certain things you almost want to like sometimes slow down for. And, you know, when you want to like, you know, maybe edit or do that little polishing, it's different than when you want to like bang out, you know, 10,000 words. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, the, the cliche, I guess, that I thought you were going to say is the one that people <laughs> talk about, about how there's no biological free lunch. The thing that I think Cindy is getting at and part of her question is, if I keep doing Adderall, is it going to be a problem? Am I going to need to do more? Because we acclimatize ourselves to, you know, I think especially to, to stimulants, you know, you got to drink more and more caffeine to get the same buzz. And so that Goldilocks area is shifting. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that can become an issue. I I would say that if you want to not be paranoid about this sort of thing and you want to be able to be consistently creative, I think you need to, in my, my opinion, I, I guess we can, in the show notes, refer to some science uh, if we can find some backup for this or if any callers want to you know, give us their advice on this. But I think that you ought to try not to create a dependency. So rotate if you can. You know, I won't do Adderall two days in a row. There's other stuff that, that I like for uh, you know, drugs and, and creativity, but I, I have a rule, no two days in a row. I try to give some space so that if it's a creative boost or it's a productivity boost, it's actually a boost, not a crutch. Mm. Caffeine is the only exception to that. I drink coffee every day. Mm. But if I did Adderall every day, I would start to have sleep problems. I would start to get paranoid about if I stop, I'm going to feel terrible for a couple of weeks. It, that would be my one advice. Last, one last thought on this is also that if you think about this all sort of brain chemistry thing, there's other ways to manipulate your brain chemistry, right? So I actually know a lot of artists who physical fitness is a part of how they like bikers, runners, because running also floods you with all sorts of brain chemicals. And so I also think in terms of maybe this is part of your toolkit of creativity, but are there also other things to your point about rotating that you can use that maybe don't have some of the negative effects of, for example, prolonged use of stimulants? Yeah, I, I would also say it would be irresponsible of us to go out, to recommend that people go out and do illegal drugs. <laughs> uh, so don't do that. Don't but, do that. Uh, and uh, and there's there's more than one way to get a natural high. And I, I think it's pretty clear that being in good physical shape is only helpful to being in good mental shape. So that would be the thing I would focus on Ooh, first. That's some quotes. All right. It's time to play a quick game called Liar Liar. And you're a liar, 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 babe. Now, this is not only the name of a bad Jim Carrey movie, but our version of Two Truths and a Lie. In this game, I will read to Shane three facts, but only one is true. Can you guess which? Fact one, Bruce Springsteen, the man of who Barack Obama once said, 
I am the president, but he is the boss, has never had a number one single in the United States. Fact two, Albert Einstein, the famed thinker and scientist, used the prize money from his Nobel Prize as the settlement for his divorce from his first wife. Fact three, Apple Computer once sued an Italian clothing company named Steve Jobs. Their logo comprised of a J with an apple leaf and a bite taken out. The court ruled, of course, that this was an obvious ripoff of a trademarked logo. So, Mr. Shane Snow, which of these three facts is a lie? Wow. Okay, so the Apple one, I have never heard a story like this, but it sounds... I I mean, you're a creative guy, Alan, but it just sounds so specific that I can't believe that it's made up. So I'm, I'm going to guess that that is probably true. Although, let me think through the other two. So <laughs> Einstein, I know he got divorced. Or I'm pretty sure he got divorced. He ended up having an affair with his cousin, I think is what it was. <laughs> so did he give his Nobel Prize settlement to uh, his ex as part of the, part of the settlement? Uh, Nobel Prize money. And then the third one was, has the boss never had a number one single. I, I think it's probably, I, I it's inconceivable to me that, that Springsteen never had a number one single. And, you know, Alan and I, you know, you and I have both been through a, through a divorce or two between us. <laughs> and, you know, I have a somewhat painful memory of the settlement process. So I'm going to believe that Einstein did give his Nobel money to his ex in order to maintain good relations and be a, a good ex. So actually I'm going to come back around. I think the Apple one is the one that actually isn't true. I think that's the one that you made up, Alan. So that's your final answer. It is my final answer. All right. Well, Mr. Shane Snow, I have something good to tell you. What's that? You got it right. I did it. Ah, so yes. You said it. So, um, Bruce Springsteen has, in fact, has never had a number one single. The closest he came was Dancing in the Dark, which peaked at number two on the Billboard 100. But worry not, he has sold over 150 million albums worldwide. He's doing just fine. Albert Einstein did give up his prize money to get a divorce. The amount at the time was $32,250 which at the time was 10x the average salary of a professor. Also, wow. by the way, side note chain, today the prize money for a Nobel Prize is $1.145 million. So we should get researching. Yeah. <laughs> but you got it right. Steve Jobs is a real Italian clothing company. It was started by two Italian brothers who saw that Steve Jobs was not actually a trademark name. So they started this clothing company. They made the logo look sort of like an apple with a bite out of it. Apple, of course, took them to court. And this European court decided that since a J is not actually edible like an apple, it's a derivative and not a ripoff. So there you have it. Steve Jobs, <laughs> the Italian clothing company. Great jeans, I hear. Great. I was going to say, are their clothes any good? I mean, they don't actually look good, but like, we'll be nice. All right. <laughs> So with that, Shane has won. And so I hope you enjoy those bragging rights. And I'm, we are I'm gonna on... brag the shit out of those bragging rights. <laughs> we are on to our last question. So let's go to the voicemail. Hi, Shane. Hi, Alan. This is Katia from Merida, Mexico. 
My question is, some creative people with depression worry that a psychiatric treatment might interfere with their creativity or make them less creative. Is this something real or to be worried about? So I think this is a such an important question. And as someone who has been to therapy for years and has had a hard time convincing people to go to therapy, uh, including myself when I first started going, uh, it, I think this is really important on that front that if someone could use help, therapy is, can be such a good solution. But the worry of, you know, if I go to therapy or if I get some sort of psychiatric treatment, you know, maybe medication, that it will negatively affect my work and my creativity. I, I have to think that's pretty common. I don't know. This is one where I, I have the feeling that you have more insight into this, Alan, from your research than I do. But uh, what do you, yeah, what's your take on this? Well, I'm glad that, you know, you think I'm the one with all the psychiatric experience. That <laughs> it's not quite what I meant, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's fine, <laughs> but not wrong either. Yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot. I, so I've spent a lot of time in therapy. I've been on antidepressants and I've talked to lots of friends about them, a lot of creative friends, and I've heard a lot of this sort of stuff, right? We're like, oh, if I like go to therapy, will I lose my edge is one I've heard. Or if I go on antidepressants, you know, will I be less able to write? And, you know, obviously caveat, I'm not a doctor, Shane's not a doctor. So, you know, get real medical advice. But I think what I've seen from my own experience and experience of my friends is that usually when you're seeking help, it's because you're sort of overwhelmed with some sort of negative feelings, right? And as a result, doing things to relieve yourself of those negative sensations whether that's sort of depression, for example, will inherently make you more productive, right? Because like when you're depressed, it's, it's not like you're depressed and you're able to actually be creative with all these moody ideas you have. You're sort of depressed, not really able to do anything. And so what I found, for example, when I went to antidepressants, I was, I'd been depressed, obviously. That's sort of straightforward, I guess. And what I felt was that, yes, there was sort of a slight numbing sensation in terms of sort of emotional range, but... It also severely and quickly reduced my sort of negative feelings and my feelings of lethargy and my lack of motivation. And so my creative output went way up um, as a result of that. And I think therapy, you find something very similar, which is sure, you might not have these oppressive episodes anymore, but you're also way more productive. And you know, you're know you not going to just wake up and lose your ambition because you're no longer depressed. That actually doesn't really make sense. So I know from a, a big investigative journalism project that I did a few years ago into antipsychotics and the misprescribing of them in old folks' homes, mm -hmm. uh, I know from that research that certain classes of drugs that are used for mental health uh, can severely impair you. And uh, antipsychotics in particular, some of the, especially the second generation ones, can be can sort of turn you into a zombie and I think have that the opposite effect right of of freeing you up to create and to you know to to live your life but aside from that what you're saying to me resonates with a lot of what we talked about today in this episode where I think if you know you you're going through mental health issues you have depression you have bipolar you've gone through other things or you you know you are suffering in a way, that is a gift because those are life experiences that you now can have empathy for others who go through that. You now have been through more of a range of experiences. You've lived a bigger life. And so getting help 
means that you now are also increasing that range of experiences. You've been through more mm-hmm. things and now you are, you know, hopefully going to be a little more free to choose the way that you want to think and the way that you want to live without having so much, so many obstacles. But that doesn't mean that you haven't learned anything because now you're, you're no longer depressed. So I would say there's something sort of beautiful about getting to experience that very human thing, you know, whatever the condition is, and then accepting help and, you know, going through the struggle of figuring out what it is that's going to help you, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or medication or a combination of both or some other type of therapy, learning to, uh, to allow others to help you. All of that is broadening your range of experiences, which I think itself can help you to be more creative. If it's true that like we, you know, we talk about that the more you have in your reservoir to dig from or to draw from, the more possibilities you have to be creative. Totally. And I think you also nailed a point that's really important, which is when these are correctly prescribed, right? And I think, you know, mm-hmm. it's, if you don't actually need antipsychotics or taking antipsychotics, like that's going to cause all sorts of problems. Actually kind of interesting, the original sort of developer of the use of lithium as a treatment for bipolar disorder actually did a study um, looking at its impact on bipolar artists. And this was not like a randomized control, like study. it was not the most, but like, it's still interesting. And they looked at 24 artists and what they found was that lithium treatment for 12 of the artists, it actually improved their creative output or increased their creative output for 25%. It had no change. And then at 25%, it decreased it. So, you know, if you look at that, there's sort of 75% chance that it either has no impact or improves your creative output. And I think this again, speaks to this idea of if you are dealing with a, you know, just crushing sort of mental illness, inherently getting help, getting relief of that is going to have positive benefits on your ability to have productivity. So I like that. I, I also think about with this question, something that I'm big on is not conflating our identities with our things we're going through or our, you know, even our preferences in many cases, you know, is saying I identify as a creative person can be helpful, but it also can, you know, limit you because maybe that identity as a creative person excludes you to be a logical person, which, you know, you can be both. And when I think about what we're talking about here, very recently, a family member of mine uh, had a, a bipolar diagnosis that, uh, that she was very upset about. And uh, one of my favorite people in the world, like, I love her so much. And she was really distraught about this. And she started describing herself as I'm bipolar. Mm. And, uh, and I saw how this was becoming kind of a limiting identity. And, uh, and we had a conversation pretty recently about how she said it, you know, again, and I said, you know what, I think that you should start reframing this as I have bipolar. You are not your condition. You are this person with all of these things to you, all of these components, all of these different identities. This is a thing that you have that you're going through that you can, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy, but, uh, but you can, you know, you can separate that from who you are. And I think, you know, another theme with what we've been talking about is uh, the worry that a lot of creative people have that changing something or experiencing something or, you know, or changing who they are is going to go hand in hand with their experiences, whether it's suffering or it's the substances that they use. And I think separate that out and, you know, don't pretend like you're not going through things or you don't have, you know, issues, but separate that out who you are as a person with a lot of capacity for a lot of things 
and back to that theme of creativity is about having a lot of capacity and then making connections. That, uh, that, that's something that I would say. And I guess on, on that note, before we end this episode, what are your big takeaways, Alan? I'm curious what, what you're tying together here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a couple of things that really strike me. I mean, one is this idea of it seems like, you know, based on sort of the calls we got and stuff, it's a lot of people sort of think of their creative identity as very static. And I like this idea of sort of you talking about not letting it be a limiting belief. Because I think it sounds very positive, right? Like I'm a creative, I'm this, I'm that. But a lot of times that I think can limit us and make us try less new things. And we know that openness is really important for creativity and sort of experiencing things. And so I really like this idea of just living a bigger life and experiencing more things and being comfortable with that. I think I think that is very you know, true no matter sort of what art form you're trying to achieve it. How about you? And well, I, I think that is the that is the summary. With that note, this has been a super fun episode, but do you have a question for us on anything creativity related that you'd like to hear on the show? Visit creativehotlineshow.com. The link is in the show notes from your phone or computer to leave us a voicemail. We are here to answer your questions, so please put us to work. We'll be here every week. And in our next episode, we'll get into something that we talked about earlier about the difference between creating for others and creating for yourself and the validity thereof. Oh, and if you like this episode, we could use your help. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to automatically get each episode for free on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. In the meantime, remember, ask your questions at creativehotlineshow.com. Bye, friends. Bye, Shane. Bye, Alan. Bye.